This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 321. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you as always. Tons to discuss on this uh, wonderful Monday afternoon. Thank you very much for being here. If you want to call in, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Quick scan of the front page of the New York Times, NewYorkTimes.com right now. Victory in sight. Clinton seeks to help other Democrats. An op-ed, this is from the opinion section, why Hillary Clinton needs to be two-faced to get things done in Washington. Sometimes you have to be a hypocrite. These people are embarrassing. The Hillary camp has reached the point now. Well, they've been there for a while. I shouldn't pretend like it's different, but uh, they'll debase themselves for this woman. Uh, they will, uh, you know, this is sort of like the fraternity hazing where you're told to go do things that are really gross. And you're like, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. And you just run off and do it. I won't give you any specifics. I did not pledge a fraternity. My roommate in college did, however. And wow. Uh, yeah. They will do whatever for Hillary at this point. I mean, they, they will completely sell out any sense they have of, of the credibility or journalistic integrity. It has just turned into a giant smear campaign against Trump. And, and they think that they're righteous for doing so. None of this is new, I know. But it just really hit me this morning as I was doing my read-in that there's this unbelievable uh, dissonance between people who are supposed to be the paragons of journalistic virtue and the reality of what they're reporting and they're doing day in and day out. Uh, I didn't speak last week about the Project Veritas uh, videos, and we might play some audio of it. We've, I've actually We're going to reach out to James O'Keefe and see if we can get him on the show this week. I didn't get to it just because we were doing other things and it was an oversight on my part. And some of you reminded me of it on Facebook. Uh, and yes, I do read the Facebook messages. So if you send a message at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, it does get to me, not just me. The rest of the team can see it as well. Um, but I will read it. And uh, some of you said, hey, you gotta do, you've got to do Project Veritas. And I thought to myself, you're absolutely right. I, I should do something on this. The short version of what's a more detailed and, and complicated story that James O'Keefe did some undercover. By the way, whenever he does undercover video, it's there's always this, quote, discussion or debate that happens about whether that's 
real journalism, whether that's fair. I mean, I grew up watching these hidden camera shows for years where otherwise intrepid journalists would expose malfeasance at, oh, you know, whatever, a, a local automotive uh, automotive uh, shop where they overcharge people and, you know, whatever, right? And that was always, ooh, truth to power, busting those who think that they can get away with bending or breaking the law. And James O'Keefe, whom I, I don't know personally, or I've, I've actually never met James, uh, he's always put in this context that's that's amazing are undercover sting videos really okay is it the whole video now he's also involved with the planned parenthood videos which means that the left hates him absolutely hates him and i'm sure that has been difficult for him personally financially uh, professionally and so he deserves a lot of credit for being willing to take that heat uh, because you go after planned parenthood i mean it's like going after the closest thing the left has to an actual you know, uh, to to a pope because Planned Parenthood is sort of like the high church of their pro-choice religion. Anyway, he went after Planned Parenthood and we kept hearing about the doctored and edited videos. All videos are edited, right? These were nonsense. These were Orwellian smokescreen terms used to obscure what was actually going on. Oh, the edited videos. You'd hear all these huffy journalists, oh, those edited videos about Planned Parenthood. Yeah, of course, they're undercover videos. They're going to be edited. Were they edited out of context to show something different than what was actually said? No. Were they faking things? No. So what's the, what is this ed- edited videos? Oh, they're edited. This is, of course, one of the tools, one of the tactics that the left uses when they don't like the truth being exposed. You've had two major instances of this now, by the way, where the Democrat machinery uses weasel words, uses all the slimy tricks that they have up their sleeves to try and undermine without openly denying right because open denial of something that's so obviously true is just a blatant lie and maybe you lose maybe there are some people who are still sane enough who used to be democrats who see how the democrat machinery how hillary's partisans react to some of the stuff and they have the disgust that they should maybe there are still some out there i don't know i don't come across too many of them Frankly, the fact that there aren't more Democrats disgusted with their candidates says a lot about their party. No shortage of people on our side who are willing to keep fighting it out. Remember all the oh, Bernie Sanders supporters aren't going to march, march in lockstep behind Hillary. Yeah, right. Who told you that was going to happen all along, by the way, that they would just get in line? Sanders supporters. I'm just saying sometimes I got to take a little credit for something. I was like, no way. Democrats. They just need power, and they figure they can get what they want when they have it, and they'll figure it out after. There's no principles at stake here. So the two big things that have come up and have been treated with this sort of uh, very special playbook by the overwhelmingly Democrat media, as you know, over 90% of journalists support Hillary Clinton. So that means that basically 9 out of 10 journos out there think that someone like me is a weirdo, don't really want to work with me. Don't, you know, don't trust my opinions. I mean, I'm more trustworthy as a human being than basically any of them. But nonetheless, they think that I have poor judgment because I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. Yeah, I'm a Republican. I like to, I like to say that. I know we all like to say conservative, but I'm a Republican, too. Okay. The Project Veritas video showed, I'm sure many of you have seen this, and if we get some of the audio, uh, maybe we can play just to give you a little, a little bit of it. 
Um, actually, do we have it, uh, John? Let me know when we get some of the uh, O'Keefe video so we can talk about it. Because I remember being on CNN back when people who weren't original Trumpers and or Hillary supporters or Bernie supporters could, could you know, their opinions could be aired in public. There are Republicans that would support Trump but were still willing to speak critically of some aspects of his campaign or were particularly adept at dismantling Hillary for the uh, corrupt, nefarious, vile person that she is. Um, I remember being told that I had to try to def- – not being told that I had to defend, asked on air to defend – Violence at Trump rallies. Buck, why are Trump rallies violent? Why is there all this violence at Trump rallies? Why do we have to shut down rallies because of the violence at them? Well, Project Veritas has got has gotten these guys on video who are talking about how their whole th- that this was uh, a an operation of instigation. That their intent was to find ways to create violence at Trump rallies to try to. Uh, have sort of high-octane confrontations out on the street with people and hope that it would escalate into fighting. Let me tell you something. If somebody gets up in your face and starts saying the wrong things, how long do you wait before all of a sudden they're too close in your face and you maybe push back? I mean literally push back. It's not hard if somebody wants to start a fight with you for you to feel threatened. Assault, by the way, under the law, depending on where you are, does not require physical touch. Interesting little legal point. Assault can be a reasonable fear of physical harm. So somebody gets up in your face and says, I'm going to blankety blank blank you up. Uh, that's an assault. Battery, depending on where you are. This is the, this is the law in New York City. Again, I have friends in the district attorney's offices here. Uh, battery is the actual hitting of somebody. But assault is, depending on, again, legal definition, putting somebody in incredible physical fear. So, doing that, and then the ensuing fight that happens, and it gets videoed, and then journalists get to go, oh, heavens, and just, you know, they have the vapors, and how will they handle this? How will they deal with this? Oh, can you see all this violence at Trump rallies? They were upset, you see, because the Tea Party, despite its enormous rallies, and then the routing of the Democrats in the 2010 midterm election, the Tea Party was remarkably peaceful. I shouldn't even say remarkably peaceful because that then also puts it in the context of there was an expectation of violence. No, huge groups of people getting together, holding up placards, organizing in completely legitimate as American as apple pie, political gathering, political protest, whatever accurate label we care, we care to apply to it. But the Democrats have professional instigators with ties directly to the DNC. This was all being manipulated behind closed doors to help construct a narrative that Trump supporters are toothless, NASCAR-loving hillbillies that just want to throw punches at minorities at rallies. That was really supposed to be the story. That was the story they ran with. And now we see that there were efforts. And by the way, these are just the ones that James O'Keefe caught on video. Do you think that there weren't other Groups, nonprofit groups or otherwise, groups loosely affiliated with the Democratic National Committee who are doing exactly this, who are setting little fires here and there and saying, gosh, look at all look at all these look at all this stuff that's going on. Oh, it's burning up into a conflagration. How could this happen? Oh, Trump is so awful. Trump is so awful. And this. Yes, I know some of you right now. It's me, Buck. He didn't help situations by saying, you know, hit him in the face or whatever. Yeah, no, I again, 
I'm not that guy who sits here and pretends that everything Trump does is smart or even okay. I tell you when I think Trump is a buffoon, just like you tell me when he's being a buffoon. But the people at his rallies, we were led to believe that they were uniquely violent. Meanwhile, it was actually Bernie Sanders supporters who were the ones acting like maniacs outside of Trump rallies and trying to shut them down. You'll notice that no Democrat rallies were ever shut down because of either a threat of violence or actual violence at them. Only Republican rallies should tell you something. It does fit in with the collectivist mindset, right? They have no right to their views. They have no right to their ideology because we need everybody on board. We need everybody united for her or with her or whatever the hell or heck, pardon me, they're saying these days. So Project Veritas, when they talk about it, of course, I, I saw some different pundits on TV over the last few days and because this, you know, they sort of cover it. They cover it so that they make it seem like it's not as big a deal, right? This is part of it. They can control the narrative then. But I have all these people who say, oh, well, James O'Keefe is a criminal, first of all. That's what they say. And I give some credit to one anchor, remain unnamed for now, who goes, well, that's a little, he pled guilty to like a misdemeanor of, of uh, you know, uh, trespassing. Misdemeanor trespassing makes you a makes you a criminal. How many how many of you have uh, you know maybe maybe in college you you know a little underage drinking or maybe, maybe you smoked a little weed at some point? Oh, he's a criminal, a criminal, sir. I mean, come on. But that's how they describe him on mainstream news outlets for a misdemeanor charge of either it was trespass, trespassing or uh, breaking and entering without authorization or something like that. For this heinous crime, he was sentenced to some community service. But he is a criminal, sir. I will have you know. What clowns these people are. Dangerous. They're, they're evil clowns. These are clowns that uh, look and sound preposterous, but then all of a sudden they pull out a long serrated knife and you're like, wait a second, this isn't a fun clown. What's going on? They're bad. Uh, they talk about the doctored videos. Of Planned Parenthood, they talk about these highly edited videos. They want the full videos released. Well, you know, if you release an hour and a half long undercover video, which I'm sure he can put up on the website, uh, that doesn't necessarily get to any subject matter anyone cares about. But these are just the talking points that you go to when you've been caught. Oh, I want the full. The full video will show what? Waiting for the meeting, walking around. What's the? Is the full video going to show these guys saying, "Just kidding, we didn't actually instigate fights at Trump rallies. We weren't involved in that at all." They won't say they're fake, but they'll discredit them. They can't say they're fake, so they'll discredit them. Same thing, by the way, with the WikiLeaks emails. Don't we have some? We have somebody now saying, uh, what is it, Robbie Mook out there saying that uh, people shouldn't. Yeah, here, play clip one for me, uh, John. These are stolen documents, stolen by the Russians. It's now confirmed from John Podesta they are being put out for exactly this purpose. Well, the you, Russians I, you know, and Donald me, Trump I just want speak this to, campaign speak to, to be that. about something else right Well, now. let me just speak to that, though, because, you know, the, the Trump tax returns were stolen as well when they were mailed to the New York Times. You guys didn't object to that. In fact, you jumped all over them. Well, we don't know where those tax returns come from. Well, they from. weren't. I, they were clearly stolen. We don't know, and, and you'd have well, do you to think, work I mean, do you with think the New York Trump Times on that. Do you think that Trump had given them? 
I don't know. I don't know how they got uh, to the New York Times. I guess what I'm saying is but, if that, if, if that, if we're we're looking at the fruits of that theft, and I will call it a theft, what's fair to look at the fruits well, of your theft? I think what's particularly disturbing in this situation is that the intelligence community has now confirmed that the, that John Podesta's emails and the DNC emails were stolen by the Russians. I, I know about the Russian released. connection. I'm talking about the 12 million dollars from the King of Morocco and and the fact that this uh, continues to sort of show the line between private and public and and uh, Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation. Again, the, this is the discussion the Russians want us to be having. They stole this information. They're selectively leaking. I can't even verify any of the information that you have there. Can't even verify it. Really? You know who could verify it? John Podesta. Can't verify, though. Can neither confirm nor deny. We know those emails are real. Come on. If they weren't, they would say they're fake. But here they are, playing the game, discrediting without denying, leading people astray without outright blatant lies. They would lie if they had no choice, but in this case, what they prefer to do is to just leave it sort of out there and unknown. $12 million from the King of Morocco. What? We've got more to talk about, team. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The Buck Sexton Show. 888-900-3393 on the phone lines. John in Nebraska. What's up, my friend? Uh, it's the only line that I see that's lit up. Am I missing something? Do we have a John in Nebraska or did he leave us? He might have left us. Let's take Jason in D.C. instead. Jason, what's up? Or not. There we go. Fixing our phone lines. Well, well done, team. Yes, sir, Jason. Go ahead. Hey, you know, a couple quick things. First of all, uh, I love how people get upset when the truth is out. And instead of arguing about what's contained in the truth, they're upset about the methods by which it was uncovered. You know, if they didn't do anything wrong, this is what I love. The same people that always love, you know, argue about the police state and how it needs to be there. And if you don't have anything to hide, you have nothing to worry about. Suddenly they change their, their, their tune when it comes to them getting hacked. Oh, yeah. 
No, all, all, this is, by the way, the dodge, the, the, the bob and weave that the Clinton camp has been doing here on this stuff is always, so, you know, they say, well, what about this email? They'll try to pin them down on a specific email occasionally. Someone like Chris Wallace at Fox will do this. And that was Chris Wallace before uh, he was interviewing one of them. And they'll say, well, these were obtained illegally by Russia, and it's all because Russia loves Trump. That's irrelevant. Oh. That's not the question. And, and then they also try to discredit it by saying, well, there's fake ones in there. And it's like, okay, which one's fake? You see, notice WikiLeaks has got an excellent record, and they've never published anything that's been fake. Yeah, well, there's no need okay. for them to, based on what we see. <laughs> no, 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 no. But what I'm saying is, in terms of the discrediting mechanism, you have uh, Kane on TV saying, well, there are, there are emails that have been this WikiLeaks stuff that are clearly fictitious. And it's like, okay, Mike, Kane, tell me which one. Which one's fake? Yeah, well, this is like you with know. the KGB a lot of the time, the compromisat, like the compromising stuff that they had going on with people, uh, was a lot of the time it's real. So this notion oh, that no. it's fake is, is, you know, well, tell us which ones are fake. And if not, they should have to admit on record which, that, that they've got real emails out which there. Which one? Absolutely. And I mean, what has this done? This has basically taken people and given them this, the tour of the slaughterhouse and how the sausage is made. And, you know, everybody suspected it and everybody's kind of known it and joked about it. But the thing about it is, as you go deeper into this, you just realize that there is a controlling group of people that, again, have complete contempt for the vast majority of Americans and think that they are some type of ruling elite, that only they can set the the things in motion. They have no faith in in the free economy. Their thing is everything has to be centralized, planned. Yeah, no, and then they'll look, go on TV and tell you it's not. Everything, everything that we thought was true about the Democrats and Hillary is uh, being confirmed by these emails and by a lot of other stuff we've learned over the last six months or so. And yet we're we're constantly being told, well, there are still quite. It's it needs more it needs more research, needs more study. No, it doesn't really. We actually are already there. No, and then and then having listening to Donna Brazell on TV trying to talk talk her way out of her WikiLeaks. And, uh, you know, how she wasn't, you know, with this email here, you were giving questions to the Clintons before a debate. It's unbelievable, man. All right, Jason, thanks for calling in, dude. We're in a break. Coming back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. So Trump gave a speech over the weekend. I, I watched it the, uh, in its entirety. And I have to say, we're not spending a lot of time on policy in this election. I've said it to you that we, we've talked about that plenty. It's been just a food fight, and it's been so low and uh, just full of all the worst kinds of of generalizations about American politics. You know, it's just ugh, been a, it's, we are at a saturation point for mudslinging, as I like to say, it's just too much. And then there was the Walking Dead premiere last night, which just was the most depressing thing I've ever seen. So uh, it's, it's been rough. It's been rough. Trump gave a speech this weekend. He gave it in Gettysburg. Um, <clears throat> of course, scene of one of the most famous battles in U.S. history and scene of the Gettysburg Address by Lincoln, and the media was sneering about Trump giving a speech there, right? Trump, the great 
the great divider and uh, Trump the racist, Trump the misogynist. How dare he give a speech on this hollowed ground? I have to say, I watched the speech and there is some really good stuff in it. And I know for some of you, it's too little too late. And I get that. But on policy, when you line up at least what, what I'm hearing now from Trump and what I'm hearing from Clinton, maybe Trump is lying about everything. Hillary's definitely lying about everything. But even apart from that, she's terrible and everything she wants is not what I want. So uh, but Trump had this contract with the American voter. And I wanted to go over some of these. You know, we're two weeks away from the election. We're going to don't worry. We've got other things to talk about today, too. But we've got to talk a bit about the election. We'll go back to media bias for a second because it's just so Oh, the media is so unctuous right now. They're just covered in their own love of Hillary ooze. It's so gross. Donald J. Trump contract with the American voter. Uh, this is supposed to be what he would do in his first hundred days in office. Uh, and starting on day one, he says uh, that he will immediately pursue the following six measures to clean up the corruption and special interest collusion in Washington, D.C. First, Propose a constitutional amendment to impose term limits on all members of Congress. I love this idea. I don't think it's going to be something we can get, but at least the American people should be talking about it. Becoming a politician, or at least becoming a politician who can stay in one elected body in one situation for an entire career, that's not the way that I think, that's not the way that I think it should be. I think there should be term limits. Why, why have term limits on a presidency and not term Well, people would say because, you know tyranny, autocracy, one man, consolidation of power. Okay, fine. I answered my own question. But still, there's some similar ideas there. I don't think that you should have people serving six terms in the Senate, you know, 10 terms in the House, whatever it may be, more than that. Uh, so a constitutional amendment to, propor- to propose or impose term limits on all members of Congress. I like that idea. That's a good idea. Why haven't we been talking about that? I mean, I mean we, I don't mean you and me and Team Buck. I mean, why hasn't the country been involved in a discussion about that no no we've been talking about billy bush and whether trump is lewd towards women that's that's been that's been the that's been of of national import for the last 60 days okay that was the first thing he suggested second thing a hiring freeze on all federal employees to reduce the federal workforce through attrition exempting military public safety and public health also a good idea the federal workforce is too Big. There are too many federal employees. It is friggin' huge. It is massive. There are far too many. And I would actually take it even beyond uh, the, you know, when we talk about public safety, you have, you should have fewer. Yeah, I'm going to say it, you should have fewer people in the intelligence community of higher of higher and have them of higher caliber. Hire better people and fewer of them. Pay them better. Have more rigorous standards. And make it a leaner, meaner, more elite operation. There is way too much flab in the IC, my friends. Way too much. It is choking on its own adipose tissue. I know it's a really gross way to look at it, but I just want to throw in some science terms. Uh, so that's one way. That, that's another another thing that Trump says over the weekend. It, it's not getting attention. No one wants to talk about his speech. They mock him, oh, like like he's Lincoln. I mean, first of all, it's okay for Obama to be the Pope, Lincoln, and Jesus combined, right? That was all fine in 2008. But Trump gives a speech in Gettysburg. It's like, oh, profaning the sacred ground with his presence, please. Okay. Uh, third, this is all from Trump's contract, uh, contract with the American voter. 
a requirement that for every new federal regulation, two existing regulations must be eliminated. I like this. It's sort of like spending cuts, you know, the way they do spending cuts for every new dollar, two dollars in spending cuts. Now, that hasn't worked out very well, but at least it's a good idea or theoretically a good idea. But we have far too many federal regulations. And if they want a new one, they should get rid of some of the old ones and they should mechanize this. It's the only way they need to be forced into things. Remember, our whole government is set up based upon what the government can and can't do. We have separation of powers. We also have Bill of Rights. We have mechanisms in place to prevent them from doing certain things. There's a certain level of automation in the construct of our government that is intentional. It's not all discretionary. It's not all up for discussion to Democrats and to statists. It is, of course. But constitutionally speaking, there are supposed to be limitations and there are supposed to be things that just happen. Right. There's an election at a certain after a certain number of years. There is a certain way that the elect that people are chosen for elections. There's a certain term of office. There's certain there are there are, you know, to borrow from the big Lebowski. This is not nom. There are rules. I mean, this is there's real stuff going on here. And I think regulations uh, should be we have far too many regulations. And if they want to put a new regulation then they should take some out. It's another a, a good idea. Will we get there? I don't know. But it's a good idea. Worth talking about. Fourth, a five year ban on the White House and congressional officials becoming lobbyists after they leave government service. Yeah. You want it? You want to take. Uh, money out of the system in a way that'll be meaningful or you want to rather take the sort of influence peddling out of the system you know now if you go to now if you want to serve and do government service you should actually be doing service it should not be you know step one two and three in your career before step four is cash out and sell out the people of america so that you can get a big house in northern virginia again another good idea will we be able to get there? I don't know. But at least it's a, it's something substantive, worthy of discussion. Uh, fifth, a lifetime ban on White House officials lobbying on behalf of a foreign government. Oh, speaking of which. Oh, what's up? Check it out, Segway. Speaking of which. Let's talk about that 12 million in Morocco for a second. So we're going to take a little diversion here. Come with me. We're making a left off the highway. We're making a left off the Trump highway. We're going over into Hillary Town for a second. I mentioned before that there was the king of Morocco offering 12 million dollars to Hillary Clinton. Let me give you some of the details of this. And this of course ties into Trump saying that now Trump saying that there's you can't lobby on behalf of a foreign government to the United States if you've been a senior White House official. So you can't go from being Secretary of State to Saudi Arabia's best friend and using all your government contacts to advance Saudi interests. Yeah, I think that's fair. I I like that. I like that. Lower level people, okay, I mean, maybe fine. But we have, have somehow allowed it to become normalized in the eyes of our, or at least in our political system, for people to feel like they're allowed to have lifetime tenure in elected office in one way or another, and that they should get rich doing this, that working for the government has become a... Look at the Clintons, the poster the children for this. I mean, the most obvious manifestation of this. Working for the government should make you rich. No, it's supposed to be public service. You, you know, you're the White House, uh, you know, you're the uh, president or you're the secretary of state. We pay for all your stuff. You get super nice food, big house, get to flown all over the world. You have basically no expenses, everything. Mwah, wonderful, right? 
We don't have to allow we don't have to create a path for you to become a millionaire afterwards by using the influence and the power you were given as a government official for the benefit of foreign. I mean, never mind domestic interests, foreign interests, foreign governments. Come on. Back to I know I'm jumping around here. We pulled off the Trump highway. We're now in Hillary Town, which is a very corrupt, nasty place where everyone wears pantsuits. And. Here's what we know about the Clinton Foundations. One of its uh, this, by the way, courtesy of WikiLeaks. Somehow all of our intrepid reporters and journalists were not able to figure this one out. Only WikiLeaks gives us this information. Oh, it's on behalf of Russia, Buck. Whatever. I still want to know. I still want to know. By the way, the same journalists who take it upon themselves to disclose classified information And think that they have an exemption in federal law to do so that other people do not, which is not true. It is not. They can say it. They get all weird when I bring this up. I had an argument with a lawyer, a lawyer for one of the biggest papers in the country. This is all he does. He thought the journalist had an exemption. I said, no, there is a practice within the DOJ. There is a tradition within the DOJ of not prosecuting journalists for leaking classified information or publishing. I should say not leaking, publishing classified information. There's no exemption in the Espionage Act for that. There's no exemption under treason for that, by the way. The DOJ just decides that in the balancing out of these things, it falls to their discretion to prosecute or not, and they don't. They tend not to prosecute journalists for this, although they will bring some of them into the loop on the, you know, they'll say they're like an unindicted co-conspirator or whatever they're calling that Fox News guy who talked to one government official. People just don't understand. They, they, uh, the ignorance on these subjects is, is astonishing. Okay, so Clinton Foundation. We didn't find this out until WikiLeaks puts it out there. Hillary Clinton was supposed to, had promised to keynote an event in Morocco right before. May, it was, this was going to be in May 2015. I'm sorry, a month after, not right before, a month after Clinton officially announced for president uh, she was going to headline an event. So she's said, I'm going to be president. And then she's going to go to Morocco and the King of Morocco is going to give her the Clinton global initiative or give her foundation a check or host the whole thing, pay for it all, give her a check for $12 million. And she's running for president and she agreed to do it. She ended up not going her husband as her proxy and her daughter, Chelsea went in her stead. But here's the email. And this involved Huma, Abedin, here's what it was said in this email, which I'm sure we will never get the Clinton campaign to confirm uh, confirm the authenticity of this, which means we can assume it is real. Here is what Abedin wrote. <clears throat> Just to get, <clears throat> excuse me, team. Just to give you some context, the condition upon which the Moroccans agreed to host the meeting was her participation. If HRC was not part of it, the meeting was a non-starter. CGI also wasn't pushing for a meeting in Morocco, and it also wasn't their first choice. This was HRC's idea. Our office approached the Moroccans, and they 100% believe they are doing this at her request. The king has personally committed approximately $12 million for both the endowment and to support the meeting. It will break a lot of China to back out now, and we had so many opportunities to do it in the past few months. Yeah. You think? Hillary's idea, by the way. That's how she thinks. Hey, I'm running for president. What's up, King of Morocco? You want to give me $12 million? Because you'd be giving $12 million to the likely next president of the United States. Just, you know, throwing that out there. You want a little love? Want on POTUS? 
Oh, it's not a quid pro quo, Buck. Maybe technically not. But it reeks like old fish left under a radiator during the winter recess when you're in college. Story for another time. Back in a few. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. John in Nebraska. We've got you this time. What's up, buddy? Hey, what's up, Buck? What's up? Um, I was uh, listening to you talk about the New York Times and their shameless bias, and I was looking at uh, the CNN website, and they uh, the title is uh, Clinton Prepares to Transition, Campaign Takes Pains Not to Look Presumptuous. And then there's a picture of her shielding her eyes from the sun like she's a, a captain on, on the prow of a ship or something. And it's just so <laughs> yeah. disgusting. And I, it makes me so angry, and it would just be so satisfying to have all the media and all the elites just wake up to a nasty surprise on November 9th. You know what I mean? Regardless, I mean, regardless of how you actually feel about Trump, that would feel good. There's a part of me that feels I, – maybe I just want to be mischievous or something, but I'm just not sure that this thing is – I mean, they, they keep – because they want us to believe it's over, I have a hard time right. believing it's over. That's kind of where I am. It's not science. This yeah. is a gut thing. It's not scientific. I'm not saying, oh, the. I know there's the oversampling in the polls uh, meme that's out there, allegation, whatever you want to call it. But I just they're trying so hard to make it sound like this is all done. And I'm like, mm. and look, there's a part of me. Trump's not going to start a nuclear war with, you know, China for no reason. OK, it's not going to happen if he became right. president. And it would be really fun. I mean, there would be tears, real tears of pure, uh, unfiltered misery, agony, and despair in newsrooms across the country if Trump wins. And that alone, I know this is a little childish of me to say maybe. Not childish. Forget that. It's a little short-sighted, perhaps. But that actually, no, better than Hillary winning. So it's not short sighted. It would be awesome. OK, we'd have 24 hours of awesome, more like a week yeah. of awesome. And that alone makes me want him to win. I feel the exact same way. I mean, anger drives so much of of many people's decisions. That right. like, I think. And keep in mind what the what the uh, the precedent is. If Hillary wins, it means the media, John, is still in a position to lie and propagandize and push a completely horrific, unethical crook, a corrupt crook into office. What does that tell us? I know. Um, for so, eight years and we know it's all been on the media's back. John, we got to bounce. But from Nebraska, good to talk to you, my man. Shields high. Uh, we got hour two coming up. Show is flying by. I believe we're being joined by Mr. Dinesh D'Souza. Oh, yeah. More coming. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is 
the Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back. We're very pleased to be joined now by Dinesh D'Souza. He is a New York Times number one best-selling author and filmmaker. His latest documentary, Hillary's America, is available now on DVD and Blu-ray. Dinesh, great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Uh, hey, good to be on the show. Uh, so you uh, are addressing a lot of things in this documentary, um, and I'm, I'm sure some of the recent headlines that have come up uh, are things that, that we wish we could see added into the documentary. Hillary may have, uh, or Hillary was thinking about getting $12 million while she was running for president from the King of Morocco. This is nothing particularly new for the Clintons, is it? No, they, uh, you know, you, you might say in all these things, they wrestle with their conscience and they always win. And what I mean by that is that Hillary was alerted. Listen, don't take a whole bunch of money from foreign entities and foreign governments. It's going to hurt your presidential prospects. And Hillary thought about it and decided to take the money because that's what the Clintons are fundamentally all about. I mean, that's why they're in politics. Uh, How do you go from zero to a couple of hundred million dollars on a government salary? These people have made money through the political system. And I think that's the kind of America that we're going to see if we keep Hillary, if we put Hillary Clinton in the White House. Now, there are a lot of people that see what's going on with Hillary Clinton and somehow, and I mean in the media, various journalists and uh, TV reporters talking heads on all the rest, and there's always some dodge or excuse for whatever comes out, particularly with regard to the WikiLeaks revelations. How is it that so many are able to brush off what seems to be so clearly evidence of not just sort of the usual run-of-the-mill Clinton corruption, but also what a role the media plays in helping the Clintons along? No one's going to be held to account for this, right? We should all just assume that this is they're all playing for the team they're supposed to be playing for, so nobody that could actually discipline them really cares. No, this is actually very terrible because, you know, media bias, one could argue, is to some degree unavoidable. Uh, We're all human and we have prejudices and biases. But just to watch the press huffing and puffing to drag, you know, this crooked hag across the finish line, it's a very embarrassing sight. And so although I don't know who's going to win on November 8th, I can declare one obvious loser in this election. And that's the mainstream media, the credibility uh, of the media. Now, one thing you deal with in your documentary, which is out now on DVD and Blu-ray, Hillary's America, is her plan to steal America. What do you mean by that? What I mean by steal America is that when you look at people like Obama and Bernie Sanders and Hillary, they don't know how to create wealth. They've never really worked in a business. They've never run a business. They certainly haven't invented anything. What they do is they use envy uh, and resentment, which are present in any country. They mobilize it. And they use it to create power for themselves. So what they're trying to do uh, when they say they're progressive, what they actually mean is they favor centralization of power in this country with themselves at the helm. And so by stealing America, I mean that they want, without earning it, to claim and control the productive wealth of the country. They want to dominate our lives from the center. And this is their political agenda. One thing that I think has been fascinating in this election cycle is how little we've really been told about what Hillary Clinton plans to do if she becomes president. All right, what do you think? The, what is the Hillary message? What is the unified Hillary 2017 message? Is there one? 
Well, you know, officially it is that it is a it is a continuation of the Obama cry for social justice, uh, and it's an it's a continuation of this notion that people have to pay their fair share. Now, pause for a moment and notice that when either when it comes to Obama or Hillary, neither of those two scoundrels has ever told us what the fair share is, what it is that is reasonable for people to pay. If someone's really successful, right now they're paying about forty percent in federal taxes, maybe up to ten percent in state taxes. That's about half your money is being turned over to the government. How much should it be? 60%, 80%, all of it? So these, uh, these politicians are essentially extortionists, and what they mean is whatever you're paying, they want more, and that's what they call fairness. What's your assessment, Dinesh, of the Trump campaign right now? When people ask you, how are you feeling about all this, what do you say? Well, I have to admit I'm a little disappointed in the Trump campaign. Uh, I have proposed to them and to the RNC uh, and to the super PACs that they take DVDs of this movie, Hillary's America, and send it to swing voters. Why? Because it's a very powerful intellectual and emotional messaging that tells not only the scoop on Hillary, but the whole history of the Democratic Party. It's the kind of messaging that they don't even begin to know how to do. Uh, And we've done it at our own expense. Investors have paid to make these movies. The movie is out there. It's, It's the top political film of the year. For some weird reason, they're not doing it. So my point is, fine, if you know how to win the election some other way, go right ahead, but I'm not sure you do. <laughs> You'd be happy to help them, and, and the documentary would be uh, useful to that end. What are some of the biggest revelations you think most people find about the Democratic Party in Hillary's America? Well, the power of the documentary is it completely overturns the conventional wisdom about the Democratic Party. I mean, the Democratic Party has essentially been in Philadelphia this year making the claim that, gee, you know, we're the party of, um, of the little guy, of the ordinary guy, of the outsider, of the immigrant, of Latinos, of women, of blacks. Now, we show in the movie... A, that the Democratic Party fought bitterly against giving women the right to vote. Republicans delivered women's suffrage. B, the Democratic Party threw the American Indians off their land and did the infamous Trail of Tears. C, the Democratic Party was for 50 years the party of slavery. D, when slavery ended, the Democrats became the party of segregation, Jim Crow, and the Ku Klux Klan. And I'm only just getting started. So there's this whole horrible history of what the Democrats have done, going well into the 20th century, right up to the present. The Democrats have never admitted their history. They've never acknowledged it. They've never taken responsibility for it. They've never apologized. And they've never paid one penny in restitution. So the movie is a mind-blowing overturning of the current account of America, and yet there's not a single fact in the movie or in my accompanying book of the same title that has even been seriously challenged, let alone refuted. Why is it that you think that there are so many Democrats who just, is it a willful blindness? They refuse? I mean, I have a lot of, you know, I grew up here in New York City. I have a lot of very well-intentioned and in many cases very well-educated and well-intentioned friends who are stalwart Democrats. I bring up these points. I bring up some of the things that you address in your documentary, Hillary's America, and they, they just dismiss it. They, they, they don't seem to care. They'll talk about the history. To, they'll, they'll talk about the history of the Republican Party till they're blue in the face, but they won't ever confront the reality of the Democratic machine as it's existed, as you point out, for a very long time. Is it just Is it a willful blindness or is it that they've been so programmed that they think that these are lies? I think part of it is that there is a deep human uh, will to rationalize one's own actions. So unless someone is morally called to account and put up against the wall, people generally don't admit the bad things that they've done. 
Now, the bad news for the Democrats is that, and by say bad news, I mean from a moral point of view, is that the media, academia, Hollywood, are the public uh, organs of our culture, the big megaphones of our culture, never call the Democrats to account. If there was a massive expose uh, about the, the history of the Democratic Party on PBS or on NPR or on CBS, this would force the debate out into the open. It would force Democrats now to say, gee, is it really true? Did we do all that stuff? And it turns out, yes, you did. So now it would be time to make some public admission. But see, if no one is ever going to pose that question to Hillary, no one's going to challenge no one's going to demand that she apologize on behalf of her party. She's certainly not going to come up with the idea herself. If Hillary is successful in, as you put it, stealing America, and as you deal with it in Hillary's America, the documentary that you can get now, it's Dinesh, uh, Dinesh D'Souza's on DVD and Blu-ray. Last question for you, Dinesh. If Hillary is successful in this, do you really believe she'll do irreparable damage to liberty and limited government? Well, irreparable is a strong word because it means it can't be undone. I think what Hillary will do is move us more in the direction of a gangsterized America. Uh, I grew up in India, a country run by gangs. My wife is from Venezuela, another country run by gangs. This kind of gangland behavior where you, you know, for example, where the government of Morocco forks over 12 million bucks uh, to a political candidate, that happens in the third world all the time. And this is why the Clintons are so comfortable doing business with these third world despots. That's their mentality. Dinesh Souza is the number one New York Times bestselling author and filmmaker of Hillary's America, out now. Dinesh, great to have you. Thank you very much for calling in. My pleasure. Phone lines are open, team. 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, let's take some calls here. We have Gina calling in from South Carolina. What's up? Hi, Buck. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I called you previously when I was in Charlotte. Um, I just wanted to uh, talk about with this election with Hillary. Uh, I'm for Trump. I will vote for Trump. For me, it's never Hillary. However, I feel that we've not reached rock bottom yet. Uh-oh. You know, what, is, what does rock bottom are, feel like? <laughs> well, I know, I know. But you know how, like, alcoholics, they have to reach rock bottom before they can seek help? And I kind of feel like that's where we are right now, that so many people who are willing to vote for Hillary because their eyes are not opened yet, you know, that they haven't reached rock bottom, you know, that enough damage has not been done within the U.S. for everybody to start, like, getting into a huge uproar. We have to stop this progressiveness. And I think that, um, you know, Donald Trump, if he were to win, he's always going to be blamed and it will be ineffective. I think he has wonderful ideas, but he's always going to be blamed. And with everything that's going on over in the Middle East and with what the damage that Hillary has done, you know, with uh, over there, I think that he would get blamed for everything where she needs to clean up her mess of what she started. So you, you feel like no matter what happens here, there's there's no – even if Trump wins, he loses in a sense? Is that what you're – Exactly. Right. That's what I'm saying. We're not at rock bottom yet. 
we need to have, and, and I hate to say this, but this is how I feel, we, we need to have more of the refugees in. We need to see more bad things happen within the U.S. of what the progressive movement really means uh, for other people to have their eyes opened. And I think that that's where Donald has been extremely effective in opening so many people's eyes, but we still don't have enough opened. I certainly see, I certainly see your logic. I, I would just I would add in, uh, Gina, that when you look at Obamacare, for example, some of the things that we, we you know, we, we've we've burned our hand on the stove as a country. It's mm-hmm. already happened. And we keep grabbing the hot, you know, we keep being forced to grab the hot plate. You know, we keep being right. forced to, to burn ourselves again and again on these things. Uh, so it's, a, I don't know if we learn our lesson as a country, or, or, or I should say, if enough of us learn our lesson to be able to stop these things from happening, because that's the key. Um, and w- with Hillary, there is, it, it is like a mass psychosis, these people who think that Hillary is so great. How could anyone think Hillary is so great? How could anyone I think know. that? I know. I have so many of my friends who that's who they believe in, and it's, uh, it just makes me crazy. <laughs> yeah, people are like, Buck, what do you think of Trump? Crazy. I'm like, I wish he would do things differently sometimes, but I think he'll lower taxes. I think that he doesn't like jihadist terrorists, and I think that he's willing right. to say things that we need to actually talk about in this country. Those are the upsides. You know, they're, I'm aware of the downsides, too. I speak to Hillary supporters, and they're like, yeah, she's great. I just, you know, she's going to really do great things. This <laughs> what, are you, what are you smoking? Because I want some. Uh, right. That's another thing that's happening. I know, anyway, Gina I know. from there, South. I'm sorry. Go no ahead. Finish up. Answer. No easy answer. But um, I hope that Donald will win, but he'll be blamed for everything. Yeah. Where yeah. Hillary, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, yeah, they'll run interference for it no matter, no matter what happens. But Gina, thank Absolutely. you for calling from South Carolina. Right, I appreciate thanks, it. Buck. Bye Good now. to talk to you. Uh, so uh, speaking of which, maybe we'll talk about this more tomorrow. A bunch of states, um, I don't think you guys care that much. Do you care that much about legalization? I feel like you don't care that much about marijuana legalization. Um, you have voters in California and four other states have legalization on the ballot this fall uh, for, for weed. Massachusetts and Maine have legal initiative, legaliz- legalization initiatives on the ballot. Arizona and Nevada also voting on recre- recreational marijuana. So could be a lot more legal weed coming. Um, interesting. It's sort of a side note to that whole discussion. I, I heard I was talking to some friends over the weekend saying that the heroin epidemic in this country is in part because the cartels are pushing heroin more. They're, they are growing more heroin. People. It used to be like all the world's heroin was grown in Afghanistan. You know, opium, uh, poppy plants. Uh, poppy plants were grown there. Uh, something like you know, I don't know, ninety percent or some huge proportion of the world's heroin production. Um, was at least started in terms of the growing of, of poppies uh, in Afghanistan. Now they're growing a lot of poppies in uh, Mexico and in areas controlled by the cartels elsewhere, and probably Central and South America, uh, because they get more for it. And but we do see, and this is where this discussion goes. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm apologies for uh, diverting here because I meant to get into the Terry McAuliffe, and we will uh, Terry McAuliffe and directing money to the wife of a senior FBI official looking into the Hillary Clinton emails. We'll get there. But some substances are more dangerous. It is a true thing to say that some substances are, are more dangerous than others, right? We understand this. Um, you know, it's uh, doing bath salts. Is that a, that's the drug, right, that people do that they go nuts? You know, doing um, lots of meth is more dangerous than vaping coconut-flavored, uh, you know, Whatever the vape, whatever we call the vaping stuff, 
One is much more dangerous than the other. I'm not even sure what the danger from vaping is other than, you know, looking like a vapor, um, <laughs> which is fine. Um, and uh, I think, what, you have nicotine addiction, right? That's the biggest risk. All right. Uh, now I got, I'm going to sort of get into this now. We might have to pause it, and then I'll come back to it. But that's the fun part about radio is we can just sort of do what we want. Clinton ally aided campaign of FBI official's wife. That is the Wall Street Journal headline here. So there's a group that it's really the political organization of Terry McAuliffe, who is very tight with the Clintons, as you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton, a political organization that is tight to him, gave almost a half a million dollars to the state election campaign of the wife of the guy who became deputy director of the FBI. Let me read you from some of the details here, because it's, the details are important and then we can get into the. The takeaways campaign. This is from the Wall Street Journal campaign finance records show Mr. McAuliffe's political action committee donated four hundred and sixty seven thousand five hundred dollars to the 2015 state Senate campaign of Dr. Jill McCabe, who is married to Andrew McCabe, now the deputy director of the FBI. The Virginia Democratic Party, over which Mr. McAuliffe exerts considerable control donated an additional $207,788 worth of support to Dr. McCabe's campaign in the form of mailers, according to the records. That adds up to slightly more than $675,000 to her candidacy from entities either directly under Mr. McAuliffe's control or strongly influenced by him. The figure represents more than a third of all of the campaign funds Dr. McCabe raised in the effort. Okay. This is all a story uh, by Devin Bartlett in the Wall Street Journal. So this huge chunk of cash gets thrown the way of this uh, woman, Dr. McCabe, whose husband is a very senior FBI official. And right when the story breaks, right around when the story breaks about the uh, Clinton emails publicly, they're like, oh, this woman, she'd be great. We should throw all this money in her. She should run for state Senate. Uh, at the end of July 2015, Mr. McCabe, this is the husband, was promoted to FBI headquarters and assumed the number three position in the agency. In February 2016, he became FBI Director James Comey's second in command. Oh, I'm just wondering, do any of you think that Handpicking the wife of the soon-to-be number two at the FBI to run for state senate and lavishing her with all this money and, and assistance from the not just from the Democratic Party, but specifically from Terry McAuliffe, close friend of the Clintons. Oh, this is all a big coincidence, right? This was just something that happened. You know, lots of people running for state senate out of nowhere with really no, at least not that I'm aware of, any background in running for any office. A lot of them have... Huge amount, huge uh, amounts of cash thrown their way, uh, especially if their husband is on the fast track to be number two at the FBI. When having friends very high up in the FBI would seem to be an important matter. Um, can we assume, by the way, that well, we know she's a Democrat, so he's the number two at the FBI. How much of a Democrat is he? We should ask these issues now the same way we do of the Supreme Court, because we know the FBI has been politicized from the very top. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, Team Buck, we're joined now by Kevin Williamson. He is National Review's roving correspondent and director of the National Review Institute's William F. Buckley Jr. Fellowship Program in Political Journalism. He's got a great piece up on National Review we're going to talk about. Kevin, great to have you. Hey, Buck, what's up? Good, good. Uh, States, plates, and pates. Do tell, what has the government been up to in the California-Mexico area when it comes to tracking people going to gun shows? What, what? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things when I heard the story, I thought, no, this is some dumb conspiracy theory thing. This isn't possibly true, but then it turns out to be true. So you've got the feds setting up uh, in Del Mar, California, and other places in Southern California, uh, arrays of license plate readers. Uh, these automated, you know, cameras that read and record license plates, license plate trackers, uh, in association with the local police there, and just building a big database of all the license plates that come and go from gun shows there in Southern California. And what they've been doing is uh, cross-referencing these uh, records with the license plate records of cars that cross the border. Uh, there at San Diego, which is just you know immediately adjacent to uh, Del Mar. So you're talking about them treating border crossing as being something suspicious in a place that's about 40 minutes from the border, I guess, at its southernmost point. Well, I guess you know, San Diego actually runs right up against the border. So, you know, treat, treating crossing the border as being somehow a possible flag for being a gun smuggler when you're actually in a border city just nuts. There was no particular reason to think any of these gun shows, the people who went there were involved with gun trafficking. Uh, there wasn't any particular time frame attached to it. It wasn't like they were at the gun store or at the gun show at uh, noon and then crossing the border at 1.30 or something like that. It was just all the people who went to the gun show versus all the people who crossed the border there in Southern California at some point or another. Uh, it's just nuts. There's nothing like probable cause. It's just a giant uh, fishing expedition targeting people who go to gun shows. Now, Second Amendment is a constitutionally protected right. There's nothing wrong about going to nothing wrong at all about going to a gun show. If this no. were, say, used to look up people who were, I don't know, going to a certain kind of place for religious worship, perhaps, and crossing the border, uh, there would be freakouts in the media. But because it's involving well, there, guns, there, there aren't to... actually though. Because the bad thing is they do that. Um, you know, they don't do it with license plate readers. They're doing it with uh, the information that's fed into uh, facial recognition software. So we've got this giant database now of faces, mostly because you have to get your picture taken when you get a driver's license or for getting a passport or other various things. So you've got this big database, about half of Americans' faces are in it at this point, that is searchable by law enforcement, and there are no rules about how it gets used. So yeah, if you want to set up a camera at the uh, you know, Trump for President rally or the Hillary rally or the Gary Johnson rally, if such a thing exists, the Evan McMullen rally, and run it against the uh, facial recognition database that law enforcement has access to. You can do that. You could do it with the people coming and going from the mosque or the local church or the synagogue or anything else you wanted to. And there are uh, very, very few rules for how this stuff is used. And most of the rules, such as they exist, are written by local jurisdictions or by particular law enforcement agencies who tend to have pretty loosey-goosey interpretation of their powers with this stuff. And, of course, it naturally gets abused in the most comical and hilarious ways. I remember that when I was uh, in the in the federal intelligence community, 
there were they were very clear on certain things that, that if you abuse certain ways of getting information, they were like jail. Just so you know, jail. Not yeah. like oh, we're going to be upset <laughs> with you, jail. And then working at the local law enforcement side, the NYPD, for a while, it was more. Well, we're going to like put in this request this way and like see if it flies or like maybe we'll just do this and this is the justification. It was and you know what, the, the, at the local level you're actually much more likely to have somebody coming and bothering you than the kind of federal level stuff I was talking yeah. about. And this is just sort of the, the, the practice you point out in your article. This results in a lot of uh a lot of hijinks going on. A lot of, you know, oh yeah. well where you know what's my ex girlfriend been up to these days? Yeah, people do this. They use it to stalk uh, ex girlfriends and wives, and also to check out people that are, they're, that may become their next ex girlfriend or ex wife. You know, uh, to to see if you're the person you're dating or going to go out with has uh, you know criminal history or any other sort of you know any, any of those sorts of things going on. Uh, there was one cop, I guess, who actually went to jail on a stalking charge after using this stuff to uh, threaten and harass a woman he had been seeing and her mother. Um, yeah, you know, most police departments uh, don't have a lot of rules about how this stuff gets used. And in terms of the ones that do have rules about you can't use this just to scan who's going to a political rally or a church or something that's, you know, First Amendment protected, there's apparently only one law enforcement agency in the country that has an actual written policy saying you can't do that, and it's the Michigan State Police. Uh, so, so we should get a high-five them, but we should ask questions about why isn't everybody else doing that? Yeah, you think about it, then Michigan's maybe the one place you'd want to do it, but uh, no, that's mean. Um, well, the, so, the, the yeah, federal government it's, it's always fights. I mean, this, uh, I, there's this Washington Post piece out today. A- any effort to try and get a better sense of uh, for the public of how yeah. these different databases, facial recognition, license plate readers, all this stuff is being used, and also uh, to get a sense of the full scope and scale of just general uh, Internet surveillance. The government yeah. fights the this Washington- at every turn. The Washington Post story, which I don't know if everyone's looked at, is, is bothersome because it's talking about this radical increase in electronic surveillance of various kinds and the fact that the way the government dockets these cases, it's actually taking you know the, 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 relative, the relevant identifying information out of the docket filings. So it's hard to see who is doing what and what's, uh, you know, what's being requested and all that. And worrisome as that is, um, this is still stuff that's going through the usual process of getting warrants and court orders and all that kind of stuff. So that stuff can be abused. But the license plate reader stuff, there's no probable cause. There's no warrant. It's not even targeting a particular person. It's just saying, well, here's an activity that we think might at some point overlap with some sort of criminal activity. You've got two things that might overlap with some criminal activity. Well, you know, driving a car on the freeway might interact with some criminal activity. Getting out of bed in the morning might interact with some criminal activity. Not getting out of the bed in the morning might interact with some criminal activity, depending on what state you live in. You know, there's um, there's all sorts of stuff that might theoretically overlap with some criminal activity that's not going to be normally subject to surveillance. But this stuff is just, you know, let's just turn on the hose and see what we can find. Uh, in terms of the abusive stuff uh, that's referred to in the Washington Post story and the government really trying to cover its tracks about who it's getting warrants on and stuff, well, at least are getting warrants in these cases. But in the other stuff, you know, it's just it's a shotgun approach. It's just let's, you know, let's throw it at the wall and see what sticks. And that's just crazy. And it's uh, it's, it's worrisome. I remember at the NYPD, you could get I, I think you could get uh, call records if it was if, if it was related to an investigation, you could pull call records. 
a related yeah. to an investigation is, is about as broad a term. I mean, think about that, right? I mean, pretty much anybody, you know, this, this is like when people start to say reasonable, you know, I, I had reasonable suspicion. I thought I smelled marijuana in the car, so I decided to pat yeah. everybody down and I found a gun. It's like, well, I guess you can always think you smelled marijuana in the car. So uh, this, this leaves the door wide open for this kind of stuff, and I think it creates yeah, a lot of, a lot of distrust. You know, what's worrisome here to me, and this is something that maybe uh, if I could go back to some of the things I wrote, say, 15 years ago and revisit them, I might have been wrong about. Uh, there were a lot of problems with the Patriot Act and some of the stuff that was adopted in the immediate post-9-11 era. But what's misunderstood about that is that most of those things that went into the Patriot Act were already investigative tools that existed in other contexts. They were mainly used in organized crime cases, drug trafficking cases, and things like that. And they were repurposed and updated and to some extent expanded. Uh, for terrorism cases. What we're seeing now is this stuff that we've done, uh, that we've thought of for terrorism investigations, being turned back down to that other level of crime. So if you go through this Washington Post story, these aren't terrorism cases. You know, they're uh, drug cases, which, of course, are all familiar enough. They're, you know, pornography cases, child porn cases, things like that. And as horrible as these crimes are, you certainly want them investigated. Uh, But what we're doing here is we're talking about a bunch of extraordinary investigative and national security tools that have been created specifically for international terrorism and for organizations related to international terrorism being turned back and used on just sort of ordinary crime. And if you're talking about, you know, using the stuff that you're cooking up for al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and whatnot to go after weed smugglers in South Texas, you know, I don't I don't think that's why we created those, and I'm not sure that um, – that you want to take those tools and expand them just across the entire universe of ordinary crime. Of course, I'm someone who thinks that, you know, drugs ought to be legalized anyway, and that would take care of most of the, the smuggling issues, uh, although probably not all of them. But, a bunch of, uh, a know, bunch of weed like ballot it, it, measures a ballot uh, for a, a house coming up, by the way. Sorry? I was saying uh, there's a bunch of states, four of them, we just mentioned this before you came on, that are that could legalize recreational marijuana. California, Maine, I forget what the other, uh, I, I named them a second ago, but yeah. Yeah. You know, which... Um, I, I'm all for that, and uh, I like I like the direction that the medical marijuana stuff takes things. But one of the things that's always driven me crazy about that is it's such a complete and total fraud. You know, I lived in Nevada for a long time where they've got medical marijuana, and there are these billboards as you go down the highway that says, you know, call Dr. Weed. Uh, Dr. Weed is actually the name of the business. And, you know, basically it says, we'll find something. For right, for that shoulder pain you've got. Marijuana. Yeah. Yeah, anxiety you know, frustration, just sort of, you know, general not feeling as good as you couldn't. We'll, we'll get you a prescription for that. So I'm much happier to see people actually legalizing recreational marijuana, although I personally think recreational marijuana is actually pretty bad. I think marijuana is um, underrated in terms of the damage it actually does to people. But, you know, let's be honest about it. It's not it's not largely being used for medicinal purposes. It's nothing like that. It's people smoke weed because they want to get high. Okay, we can deal with that, and I think it should be legal for that purpose. doesn't mean you think it's a good thing. But um, I dislike the dishonesty of the, the medical marijuana rubric. I do say, you know, I think one issue that has been lost entirely in, on the campaign on both sides uh, with, with Clinton and, and Trump is over-criminalization, which you know, Rand Paul, somebody who's obviously very big on yeah, that, ties into to the legalization issue a little bit on weed, but it ties into a lot of things. Trump talks about bad regulations, doesn't talk about bad laws, and Hillary never talks about this stuff. And I feel like that's a huge issue that a lot of Americans could actually, or, and should actually get behind. Yeah, you know, and the extent to which we go through for enforcement on things, I think, is, is sometimes problematic, too. You know, I, I, I live in Texas, 
where we go to extraordinary lengths to enforce uh, child support. You know, you can't, uh, you get driver's license revoked if you're behind on child support payments, those sorts of things. And again, I understand that you want to enforce that stuff, and there are probably other ways you could or should go about about doing it. But you're talking about creating, you know, a new class of offenders based on trying to enforce something else, which is going to be people driving illegally without licenses. Uh, then they're going to be driving without insurance because of the things that will flow from that. And you're creating a whole new set of problems by trying to solve a relatively mild problem, uh, which probably could just be solved through, you know, wage garnishment and things like that. So we do a lot of things that uh, where we want to throw the criminal justice code at social problems that don't really fit into the criminal justice code that well. And I think that's uh, something that I wish the kind of Gary Johnson message would catch on more with more mainstream Republicans than it has. And, of course, I think Republicans over the years have done themselves a real disservice by neglecting the, the libertarian end of their philosophy. You know, in the 70s and 80s, when you had sort of more of a Jack Kemp kind of republicanism and even a Ronald Reagan kind of republicanism, uh, I think it was intellectually and ideologically and philosophically healthier than where we are now, which is this kind of weird, poisonous mix of populism, nationalism, and then uh, kind of national security hysteria. Yeah. All right. Well, we got to end on that one. Not the most hopeful, but we'll have Kevin back before the election to talk about some other things. Back to more national security history with Buck Sexton. (laughs) That's right. Kevin Williamson is National Review's roving correspondent and director of the National Review Institute's William F. Buckley Jr. Fellowship Program in Political Journalism. Check out his latest on nationalreview.com. He's got a great piece up today. Kevin, thank you for your time, sir. Thanks, Buck. Always appreciate it. Uh, Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Robin in New Jersey. Welcome to the Freedom Hut. What's up? Hi, Buck. Um, you mentioned a little earlier about all the states that were having legalized marijuana on the referenda as a referendum question. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Um, just wanted to let you know there was um, a couple of stories last week or two in the Philadelphia Inquirer. The move is now on to legalize it in New Jersey as well. It's oh, not oh. by referendum. It's by the, through the legislature. And the stories revolved around a uh, field trip that a couple legislators took out to Colorado a week or two ago. And they, of course, all came back with glowing reports about how wonderful these places are. And they're so clean, and they don't let in kids, and they've got the edibles separated in great packaging from the, the, you know, the, the other forms that you can get it in. And the answer to your question is, because you said, you know, do people really care about this issue anymore? Yeah, Buck, I care. And I took the time last week to call all three of my legislators to say, please, no, stop it. Um, it, it, For me, it comes down to the practical level of I'm going to have to live with these people who are flying high if I go to the bank to make a deposit, if I go to get my teeth cleaned at the dentist. I mean, I just don't want any more of this impinging on me. And but what do you what say really to people who would who would point out that those same people could be illegally intoxicated? They could be drinking and do those things. Well, if they have a responsible uh, employer, that employer is going to make them get tested, and enough times they fail the, the the drug test or the alcohol test, they get rid of them. 
So I see this as another burden on small businesses here in New Jersey. If they've got a problem with that bank teller or that dental hygienist, they're going to have to make sure that they keep getting those employees tested too. I hear you. Well, we'll keep an eye. I didn't know about the legislature looking at this in New Jersey. Thank you for bringing it to my attention, and uh, we'll keep following this. It looks like I think a bunch of states are going to legalize. So, I, I, mean, I mean, definitely California is going to legalize a bunch of other places, too. So that's my guess. Robin from uh, New Jersey, great to talk to you. Thank you for calling in. We got the third hour already here. I feel like the show, is, I feel like the show has been 10 minutes today. It's just been flying by. Um, if you want to call in, 888-900-3393. Also, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Um, Maybe we'll do a Facebook Live tomorrow from the Freedom Hut. It's been a while. I want to hang out with all you guys. You can tell me if it's time for a haircut. And we'll talk about much more important things than that. That was ridiculous, Buck. Back in a few, team. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, hour three in the Freedom Hut is upon us, and we are joined now by Allison Lee Pillinger Choi. She is the author of Bleeding Heart Conservatives Why It's Good to Be Right, which came out this summer. Check it out, available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. Allison, great to have you on. Thank you, Buck. All right, Allison, tell us a bit about either you, the book, or both. Um, oh, man, sure. So uh, I'll start with um, the book, basically, um, Bleeding Heart Conservatives, Why It's Good to Be Right. Um, I outline social, fiscal, and foreign policy issues, and um, I explain conservative opinions from a modest and compassionate perspective. Not every every issue aligns with hardline Republican party platforms. Um, but that said, given the dozens and dozens of issues out there in the political landscape, a bleeding heart conservative net policy stance lands right of center and we uh, affiliate with the Republican party as a result. Okay. So you are, you're a fellow millennial, right? You're a, aren't you? Am I missing? I am. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I am fellow a millennial. millennial. Um, yeah, and you know this this book I, I wrote in large part because I feel as though there's a large portion of Americans, and this includes millennials, that don't make themselves honestly aware of the other side's perspective, and this um, this tries to provide a resource to hear conservative opinions straight from the horse's mouth, more or less, not from mainstream media that uh, that likes to talk about all the quote-unquote bad things that Republicans stand for, like guns, and all the good things that Republicans oppose, like women's rights. This false. This, this helps set the, set the record straight. Tell us a bit about yourself. You have an interesting background, Allison. I think people want to know who the messenger is here. Uh, and again, the book is Bleeding Heart Conservatives, Why It's Good to Be Right. Uh, what's your story? Right. So my story is uh, I am half Korean. I am um, Jewish. My father is a Navy pilot, uh, was a Navy pilot. He's, um, 
veteran and uh, just have a unique background. And while it certainly is not conservative to pull the gender or race card or play identity politics, I felt that um, being a conservative and given my background, um, I wanted to be a voice to other uh, a young, diverse crowd out there that needs to hear why conservative principles applied to personal conduct and government policy lays the best, best path path forward for themselves, for ourselves, and for our country. My mother is an immigrant, um, a legal immigrant from South Korea, and through um, through her experience of wanting to, growing up in, in a country at the time that did not view men and women equally, she knew she wanted to move to America. She came here, got a job here, and she wanted to live and work in a place where women and men were viewed as equals. And she came here legally, and, and this is uh, a nation that embraces the fact that we are a nation of immigrants. We're also a nation of law and order. So in my immigration section, I, I talk about this, that Republicans embrace immigration, that it, it is how our country was founded. We just want to reform a very broken system and have borders just the same as every other country should and welcome hardworking, uh, law-abiding, American dream-loving citizens. Um, how was it being a conservative and writing when you were a student at Harvard University writing for the Harvard Crimson? That's an interesting question, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> the other part of my background... I, I agree. I think it's I, a very interesting question. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to the answer. <laughs> um, it definitely showed me firsthand uh, an introduction how media is is can is is really tough for uh, media to have a very independent stance because the writers behind every story have their own opinions. So, for example, I was uh, I was at Harvard during the Larry Summers scandal where he discussed that there the possibility that there might be innate differences between men and women, um, and that's why women are underrepresented in the fields of science and math. Well, there was a frenzy in the academia landscape, as you could imagine, the very liberal-leaning landscape, and the Crimson did not do too much to, um, to at least to um, stand up for our, our president, who is being smeared left and right by, uh, by the faculty, um, and so that was unfortunate. Also at, at the Crimson, there is there is a it is a forum for open discussion. But clearly, I was the minority there, being one of very few conservatives. But I was I was there. I'm glad that it that it made me be able to sort of back my stances uh, better because I was up against a lot of very very passionate liberals. What would you say to uh, any? sort of conservatives under 35 who are listening, and particularly right now because the way this election's going, feel a bit embattled among their uh, among their friends. And, you know, it, it's not particularly cool in most places, or at least in most places on the coasts and in the, the very blue states, uh, to be conservative. Whether you support Trump or not, it still sort of uh, factors into the way people talk about these things now. Well, what message would you have for fellow uh, right-wing millennials who are out there? I would say that try to stay true to the right cause during this stormy period. It's really unfortunate and upsetting and disappointing what's, what's going on, whether you like Trump or not. But I try to approach my politics and my principles uh, in such a way that separates politicians from the policy. I think 
most of us, whether left or right, might might agree that politicians aren't um, aren't always the best types of people, and that's why conservatives love limited government. Politicians can also have their own agendas and are not always, uh, you know, as as Hillary Clinton showed us, she has her public face and her private face. There, there are two faces to a lot of politicians. And if if you if you're conservative and if you're even apolitical or just trying to figure out what what what's going on in this crazy political world we live in now, I try to boil it down to the fact that politicians are people too, and sometimes people stink. And that we, that's why in part we champion limited government. We want to be able to live as free individuals and be the champion of our own destinies. Um, so, yeah, just try really hard to separate the politicians from the policy because when um, uh, oftentimes people get emotionally attached or appalled by politicians and when there's emo- when emotions in play, then there's no basis for logical discussion. And that's what my book tries to do is try to lay out logically the the ideals behind conservative positions. Okay, excellent. Allison Lee Pillinger Choi, author of Bleeding Heart Conservatives, Why It's Good to Be Right. Really appreciate you joining, Allison. Thank you for calling in. Thanks, Buck. Take care. Uh, the phone lines are open, team. 888-900-3393. I got to tell you, these days more than ever, people are starting to ask me, and they're like, you're going to vote for, you know, I mean socially or that I see out and about in New York, you, you're going to vote for Trump? I'm like, I don't know. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk about this. I want to tell them. Now I've realized it's saying you're, you're voting for Gary Johnson is, that's actually, that's, a, that's not considered acceptable really either. Because people that know about Gary Johnson are like, no way, dude, you're not really doing that. Um, so now I guess the uh, the only other option is for people to, if you just want, I'm not even saying who to, who I will vote for or who, well, I mean, I'm planning to vote for Trump. Uh, but I'm talking about who you can just sort of say so people leave you alone. You know, there's some there's some degree of uh, acceptable, acceptable falsification, I think, allowed in social situations and Democrat strongholds. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not encouraging you to say that, you know, you're going to vote for somebody you're not, but... I'm also saying be prepared for be prepared for the fury if you if you actually tell a room full of New Yorkers that you're voting for Donald Trump. Um, you know, always go Evan McMullen, especially for me because my Langley brother. So it's like solidarity with former uh, former spy um, uh, Evan McMullen. So there's that that is out there. And um, with that, we will go into a break and we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, it is the main story up on <clears throat> up on Fox News right now. That uh, look, WikiLeaks. I know they're they're a Russian front, and I and I don't I don't as a in print in general or in principle applaud the hacking of email or, or any of the stuff that uh, is is going on on that side of things here. But you know, information's information; it's out there. And now we know, not that this changes anything, but it's just 
getting a peek behind the curtain of the Clinton campaign that the Miss Universe uh, hit piece, or rather the hit piece via Miss Universe on Trump, the Alicia Machado thing, which you remember, completely dominated the news cycle for a few days, that he called her Miss Piggy and Miss Housekeeping and said mean things to this woman back in the 1990s. Uh, that was the main news story in the country for a couple of days. They knew about this, or this was, the Democrats had this one lined up, I'm trying to find the, since at least December 19th of 2015, uh, according to the the report that they have now via via WikiLeaks. So they held on to this starting last, they had this ready to go last December. And, I mean, it was obviously all very pre-planned, right? Clinton's at a debate. She brings up out of nowhere the Miss Universe thing. And then it all turns into, you know, Trump is a, uh, uh, you know, Trump is a sexist. Trump is is the worst. All this sort of stuff for days and days. What's interesting to me is that you wouldn't really have thought, I think, months ago, that in an insult contest, which is largely what the campaign has devolved into, that Trump would be defeated in an insult contest. He was much better at insulting Republicans in the primary, it seems to me, than he is at insulting Hillary. Um, Crooked Hillary didn't catch on quite the same way as some of the other nicknames, although Crooked Hillary is a pretty good nickname as they go. Uh, but the, the the media sort of complicity in all this is is also kind of a, is also pretty astonishing, right? That they just once the once this was out there, it was like the signal went up for everybody to pile on. They knew about this for a long time, and this covered uh, a lot of territory. The Democrats wanted to cover Trump's a sexist, he's anti-Latina or Latino, anti-immigrant, um, and they were holding this and waiting to go. Notice that. With all the stuff that's known, all of the journalists that are out there, when was the last real bombshell about Hillary's recent past a major news item? When was when was that something that there, there's really, there's really nothing? To, to, the only think of it, the only stuff that we've been able to talk about for the last sixty to ninety days or so on Hillary that's really damning. I mean, the sort of things that are definitely oppo research and are uh, useful to her Republican opponent, have come via WikiLeaks. Think of all the journalists we have in this country, all the bloggers, all the people. I mean, okay, James uh, James O'Keefe, Ver- Project Veritas, high five for him. He also did good stuff. But, okay, so there's that and there's the WikiLeaks. And that's it. There is no, like, where are all the journalists who are looking into, they just, they've gone along with this story that Hillary's been so vetted that it's all all already out there. And it's, everything is old news when you're talking about Hillary Clinton, right? This is, this would be like, I assume the, the Senate in Rome after, you know, you know, Nero, who, believe it or not, actually was a, re, like a pretty decent ruler for a while. I mean, there were some whispers that he had a couple of people whacked to consolidate power early on. Later on, he had a lot of people whacked, uh, but you know, Nero, it was really when he decided to kill his own mother that things went south in a big way. Before then, he uh, lowered taxes. I think he actually t- temporarily abolished the death penalty. Uh, or was it corporal? No, no. The corporal punishment or the death penalty? I think it was the death penalty. But he did some things that you'd be like, oh, wow. It's not what I would have thought. Then he kills his mom and he decides to start giving public, uh, public concerts like he's the rock star in chief. He's actually playing instruments. And there are the rumors that he burn down much of Rome so that he could rebuild it and 
or they had it burned down. And then he blamed the Christians and persecuted the Christians and had people uh, executed for saying bad things about him. I mean, he, w- he went full crazy tyrant, right? But I'm sure at that period in time, people were, after a while would have just been like, well, that's Nero for you. You know, what's this, like in the 50s, 60s? Um, so, you know, A.D. And, uh, yeah, that was a thing that happened, which is nice. But uh, we, we, you know, sort of in the same way that I guess you get numb to the actions of a ruler when they're able to get away with stuff long enough. I think there's a certain numbness to the Clinton corruption. But even all that said, there's nothing else that think of this. This is a better way to put it. Think of the stories we know about because of the WikiLeaks hacking. We wouldn't know about otherwise. Journalists couldn't figure this stuff out. We had to wait for Podesta's emails to get hacked to know about this whole 12 million dollar deal while she's running for president with the King of Morocco for her foundation. No, nobody, you know, nobody could, and I'm not blaming those that try to figure this stuff out and haven't been able, because there's not that many of them. The point is, there's a huge media apparatus out there. It's enormous. You've got all these newsrooms, all these investigative reporters and journalists and all these people covering the political campaign. And they've all, all come out of the woodwork. I mean, you know, oh, Trump said this in 1993. Can you believe it? You know, you have you've even had reporters or or media figures tweeting out what they said was said to them by a member of the Trump family a long time ago, just, you know, in in private. I mean, so it's been complete open season on the Trumps. And the only really interesting stuff we find out is from either an undercover video by Project Veritas or we find out from the WikiLeaks revelations. The Wall Street Journal has done some stuff, but I mean, they, they can't be. The only ones looking into the Clintons and, and trying to find out more about how they do what they do. But he, there just wasn't the same opposition research apparatus in place. I think that's become clear now. I mean, the the Clinton Foundation stuff is still, yeah, there's Clinton cash and there's been some books on it. But there's much worse. I assure you, there is much worse stuff out there that has yet to be revealed. And it's because people either know and are, by the way, I, I would, and this is one of these things that I don't think is disprovable, but it's a fun statement to say, and I believe it, so I will just come out and say it. I believe that there are major stories about the Clintons that journalists and some media outlets have that they are just going to sit on, that they will not touch, um, that, that have come up on their radar maybe by accident or has fallen into their laps by somebody who you know, gave them information, and they're just going to steer clear of it, of course. So that's why, for, for me at least, the a defeat of Hillary, I, I like to put it more in these terms, a defeat of Hillary Clinton instead of a Donald Trump victory. A defeat of Hillary Clinton is at least at, at some level a repudiation of this disgusting collusion between all of these media entities and individuals who, look, I never come on radio, and I never go on TV or write anything and pretend that I'm just a completely objective source, right? I'm, I'm a journalist. You, I don't even describe myself as a journalist. Uh, but a lot of those who do, do so as really a cover story. Their political operatives and their cover story is that they're a journalist. And that's what we've seen now exposed in a way that I don't even, I don't even think that in good faith it can be a debatable point. I think we've seen now that the, the 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 gloves have come off, the veil has come off. It's all in on the Hillary side of things. And yeah, I mean, the, the WikiLeaks stuff, they could run so many stories on this. This could be the primary 
any number of nights this should have been driving the news cycle on all the on all of the different uh, network channels, and I think probably only one really covered it. You know, the others would cover it, but they cover it in the context of, well, we don't really know. It's not really authenticated, not really clear, sketchy sources. And they always take it as an opportunity to uh, show that WikiLeaks is bad, bad and wants Trump to win. And I have to say I think this is interesting because usually journalists are the ones that applaud transparency, even radical transparency. When WikiLeaks was releasing classified U.S. diplomatic and military information, there were plenty of journalists out there who were saying that they, you know, first of all, who were going through it and writing stories on it, the New York Times, Washington Post. They were colluding with WikiLeaks on that. And so radical transparency was awesome then. Now that this stuff isn't helpful to their preferred candidate, Hillary Clinton, all of a sudden WikiLeaks is sketchy to them. Hmm, look at that turnaround. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Show. Team, on Friday we briefly touched on the dust-up with Duterte, the president of the Philippines, and him saying that they're leaving the U.S. Uh, or leaving the U.S. orbit and moving into sort of China's side of the ledger. Uh, we're going to dive into this a bit more now. We've got Gordon Chang. He is a Daily Beast columnist and author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for calling. Thank you so much, Buck. All right, the Philippines, they're saying some stuff, or at least Duterte is saying some stuff. Uh, what is the, what, 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 what's the China angle here? I mean, are they, trying, you know, is, are they trying to push the Philippines more into their orbit, or is this just bluster from Duterte? A, a little bit of both. Uh, China would like to push any country on its periphery into its orbit, and I think it's trying to take advantage of the situation because Rodrigo Duterte is genuinely anti-American. I mean, this is not just some sort of bargaining um, tactic on his part. He generally does not like us. But fortunately for us, uh, Duterte is not the only person in Manila. And there are many people who uh, are against what he's doing. But also, what he's trying to do is very difficult because China wants to dismember the Philippines. That's the overriding backdrop to all of this. And Duterte can't give the Chinese what they want without losing power himself. So this is going to be a situation difficult for us for his six years in office, but we'll survive this. Well, what do you mean do they want to dismember the Philippines? Give us some of the, if you would, Gordon, please give us some of the background about the relationship between China and the Philippines. Well, China claims 85% of the South China Sea with its infamous nine-dash line, which, by the way, has been um, um, the, the tribunal in The Hague in July has said that it has no basis in law. But nonetheless, China maintains this very expansive claim. Now, as a part of that claim, a large part of the Philippines, in Beijing's view, actually are Chinese. So, for instance, if you go back to 1994, China seized Scarborough Shoal from the uh, uh, Mischief Reef from the Philippines. Early 2012, they seized Scarborough Shoal, um, again from uh, the Philippines. They are pressuring Second Thomas Shoal, which is long thought to be part of the Philippines. So this is a very difficult situation for Duterte, because while he would like to move away from the United States, 
we are the only guarantor of his security. We have a treaty obligation to defend him, and the people in the Philippines know that. Um, there is great support for the United States among people in Manila, and, and that's a reality that Duterte has to uh, understand. Now, uh, you, you mentioned we were talking a bit about uh, the Chinese plan. This is uh, last week. Uh, how China would like to break out and and not continue to be sort of boxed in by U.S. allies in the region. Gordon, you've written a piece here. Uh, China's this is on the SundayGuardianLive.com. China's century is already over. I think people generally think of China right now as still this robust and, and ascendant power, uh, building those bases in the South China Sea off of the sort of small what is it coral atolls, or they're they're building up uh, landmass and creating military. Uh, military platforms there, uh, but you're saying the China century is over. Why? Why do you take that position? There's three reasons. First of all, you have the economy, which is not growing at the 6.7 percent pace that Beijing has claimed for each of the three calendar quarters of this year. But even if you were to believe 6.7, they are creating debt in order to create that growth. They're creating debt four times faster than they're producing gross domestic product. And that is a problem for them because that's completely unsustainable. They have an economy that's growing maybe 3 or 4%, maybe even the 0% that a professor at Peking University has recently talked about. So they, they've just got an issue with their economy. They cannot afford their ambitions. At the same time, they've got distress in their political system, as Xi Jinping, a very willful leader, is trying to break decades-old norms designed to ensure stability. That's causing um, untold heartburn in Beijing. And they've got a demographic problem. They've got a demography which, in demographic terms, is collapsing. And that will not be able to support their ambitions long term. So you put all those things together, you've got a country that's in trouble. I think they've reached the high point of what they can do. And right now, they've got an issue because they're going to have to manage decline at a time when, as you say, everyone thinks that they own the century. Let's talk before the demographic issue. Uh, I want to I want to get your take on that. But what happens if the Chinese what what happens if all of a sudden and as you point out to have the exact same growth three quarters in a row seems like this is like sloppy cheating on the test. You know this is this is getting uh, you know this is a C student who all of a sudden gets a hundred and, and everyone's going to say wait a second <laughs> you should have gotten one or two questions wrong on purpose so it looks more believable. Uh, so so clearly there's there's some manipulation going on there. But what happens? When the music stops, what happens if all of a sudden it becomes clear to the world and to a lot of the Chinese population that they're not growing at the rate that they've been told? Well, I think um, a couple of things happened. Last year we saw um, $1 trillion of net capital outflow, according to Bloomberg. Um, this year uh, capital outflow is maybe a little bit reduced from that, but it could very well end up about the same pace. No economy can withstand that. And a lot of people say that they have essentially maybe decades of recession or recession-like stagnation in front of them, like Japan. But I think that that's unlikely, because Chinese leaders are very manipulative with regard to their economy. When they're doing that, the underlying imbalances are becoming larger. They're going to continue to uh, manipulate it until they no longer have the ability to do so. And when they no longer have the ability to do so, it will go into free fall. We're going to see a debt crisis in China, the likes that the world has not witnessed since the 1930s. And it's going to be located in one, chi- in one country, but it's going to radiate out as people panic. What's the demographic uh, angle of all of this, uh, assuming that, that this collapse 
happens in in relative in the relatively near term. What are the demographic challenges China, uh, China faces? Well, China is um, supposed to peak um, total population in 2028. I don't think so. Some people in China are talking 2020. What's really important is that India, for the first time in three centuries, or perhaps in all of recorded history, will become the world's most populous country in 2022, according to the UN. Um, that number has been brought forward by six years um, in the latest, latest batch of statistics. The workforce is, has peaked in 2011, much earlier than the 2016 official prediction. We're seeing demographic change occur very fast in China. And it's the workforce, I think, that is going to be the biggest driver of this, because China prospered during decades from the 1980s forward because of the demographic dividend, an extraordinary bulge in the workforce. That's now over. The workforce is getting smaller. That has all sorts of implications for the Chinese, who I think the leaders are going to start to see a closing window of opportunity because of demographics and because of the economy. And that means they have incentives to be much more provocative in the short term, not in the 20 years from now that people worry about, but now. And militarily speaking, you know, we, we have to often right now the primary challenges that the national security uh, analysts in this country, both inside the Pentagon and, and outside in the public, you know, in, in the private sector face is, well, we need to deal with counterinsurgency, we need to deal with Islamic uh, radicalism around the world. But whenever we start to talk long term, we look at the plans and budgets for you know, aircraft carrier programs and missile defense and things like that. Uh, China is what looms in people's minds as, as the biggest competitor and therefore the biggest right. threat. Uh, how far out is a real is a real possible confrontation with a Chinese military in your mind? I mean, is this it right now? I think it feels somewhat unthinkable to most people based upon current trends. But yet all the long term planning has to take it into account. Yeah, most wars are considered to be unthinkable uh, until they actually occur. Uh, you know, with China, um, you can have an accident spiral, <coughs> excuse me, spiral out of control, you know, as we've seen in so many other instances um, right now, um, you know, the Chinese are doing things which are extremely provocative. So, for instance, seizing Scarborough Shoal in 2012, they did that because they didn't get any pushback from the Obama administration. And, you know, they didn't get any pushback from the Bush administration before then. One thing we know, and that is the Chinese leadership will challenge the new American president in his or her early months. They did that with Obama in March 2009. They did it with his predecessor in April 2001. We're going to see some sort of incident in the coming months. And the question is, how does that play out? You've got some very arrogant Chinese who think they can push us around. And clearly, you know, they've been right so far. But, you know, this has been a problem throughout history that people just sort of think that they can push democracies around and eventually democracies push back. That's when you have really big wars start. Gordon, what do you think about the, uh, the, the commentary from the Trump camp, from, honestly from the, can, uh, from the candidate himself, uh, Donald Trump, about China with regard to currency manipulation and bad trade deals? Are there some merit to these complaints, whether he understands the full depth of them or not? Yeah, well, China is manipulating its currency now, but it's manipulating it upwards rather than downwards. It's doing that because it needs to prevent capital outflow, and that's a big benefit to American exporters. This has been generally true for the last 18 months, with maybe two months' exception, where they've pushed it downwards. 
So Donald Trump is right if he were talking five years ago, but right now he's completely wrong on currency manipulation. You know, on trade, um, the problem with China is not the nature of the trade deals we have with them, though one could argue about that, but it's just that we're not enforcing them. The Obama administration didn't enforce them. The Bush administration before that didn't enforce them. So that has eroded the consensus for free trade in general, not just with China. And I can understand why people are really upset, because the administration is not protecting American workers. So that's a real thing. So China is cheating on trade deals that are in place or is violating trade deals that are in place. And, and its trade behavior has gotten worse, Buck, over time. They've become much more predatory, especially over the last two and a half years. So, you know, there's been very little or relatively little um, response from the Obama administration. But how, Gordon, if you give us, like, how does China cheat on trade deals? How is China doing this? Is, you know, people want to know some of the details so they can sort of put this into the proper context. Well, what we've seen is um, a very predatory enforcement of internal Chinese rules against foreign companies. So, for instance, in anti-corruption and anti-monopoly, um, these laws generally get enforced against the foreigners and often not against local companies. Um, the subsidies for local Chinese manufacturers um, have gotten worse, not better. And, and, you know, you just go down through the list of the things that the Chinese are doing right now. They're, you know, they're just violating their um, trade deals, especially the WTO accession agreement. And, and, you know, both this administration and the one before it do file trade cases, but these trade cases are generally ineffective. And so the Chinese just have gamed this system. And so, you know, you look in general over what they've been doing over the last two and a half years, it's much worse than what they were doing before then. And, you know, at this point, um, they, they do it because they can get away with it. What would happen if we did enforce these deals? Last question I have for you, Gordon, before we have to go into a break. But people often trot out the specter of a trade war as though that's the our options are either suffer in silence and let the Chinese cheat on trade deals or else there'll be a trade war. What do you make of that? That's absolutely silly. There's a trade war already, but only one side is fighting it. You know, the Chinese, and the most important aspect of this trade war, involves cyber theft of somewhere between three to $500 billion a year of intellectual property is stolen by the Chinese by cyber means, and we do not respond. Um, and this is our fault. Um, and so, you know, essentially, this is a, we're bleeding already, so we've got to do something. Yes, everything we do will cost us. There's no no-cost solutions anymore. But the point is we cannot allow this situation to continue. All right, Gordon Chang, Daily Beast columnist and author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, always great to have you, sir. Thanks for calling in today. Thanks, Buck. Uh, team, we're going to close it out on the flip side of this break. Stay with me. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. the Buck Sexton Show. I don't really know how many of you watch The Walking Dead. Never really done a sort of informal Team Buck poll. I'm assuming a good number because it's a huge show. A lot of people watch it. I sort of watched it, got bored, and then went back to it and got kind of caught up in it. And now I uh, managed to find a place to watch it last night. I don't have cable, but I found a place that did where I could watch it. And 
I saw the the premiere episode, and it was actually hard to watch. Uh, there is a level of violence that I think is excessive uh, for anyone to be putting on cable TV. And I think Walking Dead kind of went right up to it last night. I got to say, it was pretty horrifying. And I don't really, I have to say, you know, I know the people who will, who will take the position that, you know, well, it's art and it's supposed to, you know, move you. And the more emotionally involved, you know, it's not real. And the more emotionally involved you are, uh, the better is the storyline. But I found myself being a little, uh, I don't know, uh, a, a little pushed away from the whole thing. And I so rarely, I'm not one of these people that believes that video games, you know, make people into you know, psycho killers or any of that kind of stuff. I think that people have free agency and that a lot of us, and then we can actually handle seeing uh, a lot of violence on TV, especially in the context of it, right? I mean, violence in a, in a movie about, you know, the Viking, in, Viking invasion or something a long time ago, it's very, has a very different feel than some of the other violence that you see, right? And, you know, v- uh, violence in historical battles versus something that feels like it could be down the street from you. But I just got to say, Walking Dead was it was it was grim last night in a way that I don't know if it was up there with like the Red Wedding from uh, Game of Thrones. It was up there with the most sort of appalling and shocking and gut wrenching, actually gut wrenching moments of of any show I've ever seen. I, I was, it was it was traumatizing. Is all I'm trying to tell you. So anyway, if you if you haven't seen it yet, wanted to give you fair warning on that. Uh, tomorrow we're going to deep dive on Afghanistan team, and I've got a bunch of other things already planned, so it will be an exciting show, as per usual. Send me your thoughts on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Please download today's show, listen to the podcast, and if you've already listened to the whole thing, you know what you could do? Share it with a friend. Until tomorrow, Shields High. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.